will be forever with you. That we will be able to spend eternity in a moment of constantly no weeping, no pain, no hurt. So we look forward to that day and we long for that day. But please help us as we look at your word this morning to remember that you have called us to a certain way to live while we wait for that day. That you would give us insight and understanding by your spirit to your word and what it means for us and how we're meant to interact with this broken world that we're in right now. We know that one day heaven and earth will be united together and it'll be a glorious day where we will be in your presence for eternity. But for now we have a broken world because of sin and so please help us to understand what it means to live faithfully in this world as you've called us to. So help us to have our hearts and ears ready to hear and to apply to our own lives what it is that you want us to have our lives look like as we go through each week. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever felt like you were just in the right place at a moment in your life? Maybe you had a moment where you were able to actually like be a part of someone's life being saved and you just were in the right place at the right time. Or maybe it's a sport that you play or a certain skill that you have. Or maybe it's the, the job you go to. Or maybe it was you when you were standing there at your marriage ceremony. Or maybe it was the first time you held your child in your hands. This moment where you just feel like you're in the exact right place at the exact right time. It's a great feeling to have that at that specific moment in your life that you feel like this is what I was meant for. And while we can look at our kind of life events in a way of saying that I can look back and see those moments, I wonder if sometimes we miss that spiritually in our relationship with God and living the way that he wants us to live, we're actually meant to have that feeling regularly that whatever situation in life God has put us in is exactly where he wants us to be. And so I think we should apply this not just to our salvation, that we're exactly where God wants us to be, that we're in relationship with him, that we're reconciled to him by trusting in Christ, but also... That we have a calling God has given us. And God has called you with a specific purpose to the home that you live in. The church that you're a part of. The community that surrounds you. So today's whole discussion as we continue in our study in Acts is all about calling. There's a specific calling for witnesses of Christ to live by, but it's going to look different. And what we'll see here is, even right from the get-go in our passage this morning, we see two different people figuring out their callings. And then we follow one of them as they live out their calling, we'll follow Paul. So last week we ended 
getting most of the way through Acts chapter 15, where we see what's called the Jerusalem Council, right? So there was this debate going on of the Gentiles are now receiving Christ. The Gentiles are being saved. Do we have to require them to follow the same law that the Jews had followed? And the decision was made, no, they don't have to follow the law to be saved. Salvation is by grace through faith alone, not by following the law anymore. But they sent a letter to urge the Gentile believers that they, they should still live a certain way, right? That they should, they should stay away from idolatry, that should, they should stay away from certain things that might cause their Jewish people around them to stumble. So there's a certain way to live as a result of being saved, but that way of living doesn't necessarily make you saved, You don't get saved by the law, but you have a certain way of living as a result of already being saved by your faith. And while this is great news to all the Gentiles that they don't have to follow the law to be saved, immediately following it, as we get to the last paragraph of chapter 15, we see Paul and Barnabas arguing with each other. They're about to go on their second missionary journey together. They've already done one. We saw that last week. Now they're about to go on their second one together. And they cannot agree on something. On their first missionary journey, they took Barnabas' relative, Mark. As soon as persecution came upon them, Mark abandoned them. He left. He was no longer part of the missionary journey. He went back home. And so now they're about to start their second one, and Barnabas wants to bring Mark along. And Paul says, no. Do you not remember what happened last time? And so Paul is adamant that I'm not going to let him go. And Barnabas is like, listen, I think we should give him another chance. There's a reason, right? Barnabas is the encourager, right? Remember back when Paul was first saved and none of the apostles wanted anything to do with him? Who's the one that gave him a chance? Barnabas. Right? So Barnabas kind of has this soft spot, especially for Mark, because it's his relative. But it actually causes a division. Barnabas takes Mark, and they go on this journey, and Paul actually connects with Silas, and they go on another journey. They separate from each other. Paul and Barnabas do. And we can be left wondering, our question here is, who was right? Did Paul make the right decision? Was Paul being too harsh? Some actually argue that Paul made a mistake here. Because by the end of Paul's life, as he writes his final letter of the New Testament, in 2 Timothy, he actually writes to Timothy, he says, please send Mark to me because he's very useful for me. So some people hear that and they say, see, Paul, you should have gave him a chance. But we're also forgetting that that's years later after Mark has had time to mature. So some say Paul was right, that that after what happened the first time, that Mark had some growing up to do. The point is not who was right or wrong. I think Luke leaves out an explanation of who was right and wrong for a purpose. Because Luke understands something that all of us should understand, but maybe you haven't caught it yet. What does Mark end up doing? Mark ends up writing the Gospel of Mark which is the first gospel of the four written. And when Luke writes his gospel, anywhere from five to ten years later, 
it's actually said that Luke had Mark's gospel there with him, and he was reading through it as he was writing his own account. Now, Luke had gotten other stories from people. Luke had, gotten, uh, had done his research to find out what Jesus' life was like, but Mark had already written one, so he was kind of following along with that as he was writing his own to a specific group of people. So regardless of whether Paul was right or Barnabas was right, the reality is God had a calling for Mark's life. God was going to lead Mark to write the first gospel account of the life of Jesus. And then we go to Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. Paul's now trying to figure out his calling in a sense. They try twice to go to two different cities, and it actually says, the Spirit prevented them from going. So Paul and Silas try to go here, the Spirit stops them. They try to go here, the Spirit stops them. And Paul's got to be questioning, God, I thought you called me to be going to the Gentiles. And now you're stopping me. And then Paul receives a vision of a man from Macedonia who says, come help us. And look at the response. Acts chapter 16, verse 10. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so they set sail. Nothing prevents them. So God had a specific calling for Paul, as well as for Mark. God had actually stopped Paul from going into certain cities because he wanted Paul to go to Macedonia. So all of this to say, God has a specific calling for people's lives, including yours and mine. Sometimes it may not be easy to figure out. I'm sure Mark was questioning what his was. We see that Paul was probably questioning where it is that God was trying to lead him. Some of you have maybe heard of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a longtime preacher at Westminster Chapel in London, one of the most faithful preachers of the Bible in the 20th century who went through medical school before being called to be a pastor. He had a long period where he was probably wondering, God, what are you calling me to? So for us, this is a reminder that we need to determine, first of all, in order to be faithful to our calling, we have to determine what is our calling. But it may not be as difficult as it was for Paul or Mark to figure out. For some areas of life it may be, but for others it's not. Because I can tell you here three areas that I can tell you what your calling is. First area of life is you have a personal calling. The way you live in your house, you are called to live a certain way. First, individually, you are called to walk faithfully with the Lord. Just in your individual life, you are called to spend time in prayer. You are called to spend time reading the word. You're called to walk faithfully with God. You have a family call if you live with family members. So for 
husbands and wives. This means that you're called to spiritually encourage each other, to keep tabs on each other and how your relationship is going and how the other person's relationship with God is going. You're also called, if you have children, you're called to be godly parents, right? So here's another calling, that you're called to teach your children the ways of the Lord. You're called to instill the values that God values. If you're a child in the family, you are to understand the role of godly parents. You are to seek advice, godly advice from those parents. You are to listen to their leading as they try to lead you in a godly direction, And we can extend this personal calling into grandparents and extended family, depending upon what your relationships look like. So that's first. You have a personal calling. Second, you have a church calling. If you are here this morning, or if you're watching, or you're a part of this church, you have a calling to be a member of this body. Right? Jesus never presents, ever, nor anywhere else in the New Testament does any other apostle or whoever wrote it never presents the idea of being a loner Christian. It's never a possibility that you walk through your Christian life with no other believers around you. That was never the intention. So you're called to be a part of a body of believers. That's why it's so important for us to be together on Sunday mornings. And I don't mean just virtually, while we've had to do that because of the times around us, if at all possible, it is best for you to be here as much as you can. And in this calling to be part of this body, we commit ourselves to each other. We commit ourselves to worshiping together. We commit to each other's growth together. Paul will later write and talk about how the body has different body parts, right? And all of them work together for a purpose. That's the way the church works. Each member has a specific role to play. So you have a calling, not just to be a part of the body, but to serve the body in a specific role. For some of you, it might be a teaching role. For some of you, it may be you're good at working with kids. For some of you, it might be outreach, So that's your second calling. And your third area of calling is you have a community calling. Now this might look the most diverse because each and every one of us have different gifts and skills and education to determine where we're going to be at in the community throughout the week. But I can promise you, you have a calling regardless of your skills and education and what building you're in. Your calling is to be a witness for Jesus. No matter what job you have, your calling is to display Christ in that job. So you have specific gifts that God has given you. God has given you something specific, multiple things probably specific, that you can use in your home, here at the church, and also in your community. So I can tell you, while you may not figure all of the ins and outs of your calling out right away, I can tell you, this is part of your calling. You're called to walk with the Lord in your personal relationship. You're called to lead your family or be part of your family in a godly way. You're called to be part of this church and be faithful to it. And you're called to be a witness for Jesus in your community. 
While the details of that may not be all figured out because each one of us is going to look different, I can promise you that is part of your calling. Now, how do we do this calling? What does it look like to live this out? And that's what we see as we continue on with Paul here, right? So we don't hear about Barnabas and Mark after this. We just follow Paul's journey, and we're going to see Paul go on two missionary journeys here. He goes to a number of different cities, but the first one he goes to is Philippi, where we see Paul uh, share the gospel with a woman named Lydia. She believes in the gospel, but right after that, Paul and Silas get arrested because Paul casts out a demon of a girl that's following him around, and her owners realize they can't make money off of her anymore, so they have Paul and Silas arrested. But then what happens? Paul sees that he was called to be in prison because the jailer at the prison gets saved and his whole household. But then we now get into chapter 17, and we see some descriptions of how Paul lives his calling out. He'll continue after this in his missionary journey. He'll go on to Corinth, to Ephesus, to Macedonia, to Greece, and other cities. But let's sit here for a moment and see what Paul committed himself to in his calling. How did he live this calling out? He's in Thessalonica here at the beginning of chapter 17. And look at what it says, starting in verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Notice what Paul did here. The way he lived out his calling, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Jump down to when Paul's in Berea, chapter 17, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. The first way to live out your calling is to use the Bible. Pretty straightforward. This is what Paul does. He goes to these places and he reasons from the scriptures with these people as he lives out his calling. These people receive it, from Berea at least, they receive it and they examine the scriptures themselves to see if it's true. Paul has a commitment to using God's word in his calling. But then as he continues on into Athens, we see... Not that he doesn't use the Bible, he still uses the biblical values, the biblical truths, but he presents it kind of in a different way. Because in Berea and in Thessalonica, he was talking to Jews who already believe the Old Testament, and he could reason from it. Now he's in Athens, where it's not Jews. They don't have a scripture that they hold on to. And so Paul presents things a little bit differently. And so let's read here how Paul presents the gospel to them and see if you can catch what he's saying. Starting verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." So Paul walks in and he sees idolatry, a city filled with idols, one of them titled the unknown God. Just in case there's one out there we have it, we've kind of missed, we're going to put an idol up for him. And Paul says, what you see is unknown, I proclaim this to you, the God who made everything. Now here's the command from Paul, repent, because God has proven by this man, Jesus, by raising him from the dead, that one day he will judge all. Repent. Believe in this Jesus. Trust in this Jesus. Because this Jesus, whom you once didn't know, because you have a, something to the unknown God, this Jesus is better than all those other gods I walked by. So the first way Paul lives out his calling is he uses the Bible. The second way is he presents Jesus as better than anything else. So, as we look at living out our calling, we must remember that first we must use the Bible. And not only when we're talking to Jews like Paul. Because now we have all of Scripture. Paul didn't have the New Testament. Now we do. We have the truth of who Jesus was. We have the true reality of everything finding its climax in human history. All of it found in Jesus. Human history culminates in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So while we have a world around us that's bombarding us with all sorts of voices saying, believe this, this is true, you should fact check this. We can trust the scriptures and know that the true reality, the true way to see the world for as it is, is in Christ. The Bible is the lens through which we look through and see the world around us and understand the world for how it really is. So your calling must involve the use of the Bible. And it also must involve, by using the Bible, it's the clearest way we can present that Jesus is better than anything else. Our words, our thoughts... Our emotions, our actions are called to display Jesus as better than anything else. 
I once worked at a school that was kind of in a, a rough part of a city. And you get to see, when you spend week in and week out with a, a specific community, you get to see what they hold dear, what it is that that community values. And it was really interesting. This was a rough, poverty-stricken neighborhood, at-risk youth. And they would come in each week. They actually lived in this. I was in the dorms. Like, it was a dorm school, so boarding school. So I was a dorm parent there. And they would come in each week. And they would be carrying over their shoulder their clothes for the week. And many of them, two or three nearly brand-new pair of shoes. But yet, they didn't know when they went home for the weekend if there was going to be food in the cupboard or if the electricity was going to be on. There were specific values in this community that the image presented by what shoes you wore were more important than whether you had food in the cupboard at home. They had a value placed on the image of what other people saw rather than food in their own stomachs. You see, the way we live displays what it is that we value. So if we decide we're going to send our kids five days a week to school, yet for four weeks we're going to skip church, what are we displaying as our value system? Or if we act depressed or lazy at work because things didn't go the way you wanted them to, your coworkers are watching to see, are you only valuing this job for what you can get out of it? Or, don't give me too much heat for this one, Or if all we do is get on Facebook and complain about whatever political presidential candidates are out there, the community around us sees it and says, I see what they're valuing. Brothers and sisters, can we just agree that both of the candidates are terrible? (laughs) Can we just agree on that? But can we also agree and say that we have a king who reigns over all kings? Do our Facebook posts display that Jesus is better than any political candidate? Do the way that the values we display to our community and to our children display Jesus as better than anything else? Do we cherish Jesus of the Bible? Not just do you believe the Bible, but do you cherish and treasure the Jesus of the Bible? But we always know, right, living out your calling does not come with its negative consequences. Trials are inevitable. We saw that earlier in Acts. We see it again here. There are trials that come with our calling. Paul faces a number of persecutions. Let me just read them off to you here for instance. When he goes to Philippi, he gets arrested. We covered that already. In Thessalonica, a mob forms and attempts to pull him and Silas out of the house that they're in. In Berea, those same, that same mob from Thessalonica comes down and stirs people up there. In Athens, he gets mocked by the people he's preaching to. In Corinth, they were 
revile him and make a united attack to bring him to the proconsul of the city. In Antioch, where Paul gets sent on his missionary journeys, Paul finally returns home and gets a moment to breathe. Then he goes on his third missionary journey where he goes to Ephesus where people speak evil about what Paul is preaching, where he has sons of Sceva who are men trying to abuse the power of Jesus to cast out demons. And you have Demetrius, a silversmith, starting riots because he's lost money because he doesn't get to make his idols anymore. In Macedonia, there's a plot made against Paul. And then he sets sail for Jerusalem where he's told that persecution awaits him there and we will see next week the arrest and trials. Needless to say, God calling Paul to Macedonia was not telling Paul, your pathway is going to be easy. Paul was going to face troubles in all of it. But what we do see God giving Paul is moments of encouragement in the midst of these trials. Right? When Paul's sitting in prison in Philippi, the Philippian jailer believes in Jesus. In Berea, he has believers receiving the word with eagerness. He has a leader in Athens while he's being mocked by people. There's a leader that says, I want to hear more about this. Or if you look at chapter 18, verse 9, look at what God says to Paul. He comes to him in a vision. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. In chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus, and they have believers there. I'm not going to read all of it. Paul has, there's believers there who are actually bringing their books of magic. That was a big thing in Ephesus, magic. They're bringing their books together and burning them as a result of trusting in Jesus. In chapter 20, Paul gives encouragement to elders from Ephesus, telling them to follow in the way that he has set before them. There's going to be wolves that come in and try to tear apart the sheep and try to divide the church, and Paul gives them encouragement. So all of this to say, there's a necessity of encouragement in the midst of trials. I can promise you, you're calling is going to be trialsome for you. You can't avoid it. There are going to be days when you wake up and your heart is going to have to fight tooth and nail all day long to believe that Jesus is better. There's going to be times when your kids want to turn away from walking in the ways that God would want them to walk, whether it's small or big. There's going to be moments when your coworkers present an immoral option for you, or they stir you to say, trust in this idol. And there's a very real enemy that's going to create doubt in your heart about your own time availability or your own skills to serve the church or your family. But there's encouragement. In the midst of your trials, you can go to the word and be encouraged by God. God will give you words of peace, rest, comfort, hope, joy in the midst of your trials. He doesn't necessarily remove the trial, but he reminds you, I work all things together for good for those who love me. And what he means by that is, I'm working all things together to make you more like Jesus. 
And then we have encouragement that we receive from each other, right? Paul actually is willing to receive encouragement from people and give encouragement to people. So when we show up together at church with other believers, are we willing to receive encouragement? Are we willing to have people speak into our lives? Are we not so consumed with a busy schedule that we can actually be open with the believers around us? But also, are we willing to give encouragement? Look at how Paul spends his time. Throughout just these passages, we see he stayed three months here. He stayed a year and a half here. He stayed two years here, strengthening, encouraging those who were already saved. So, when you show up at church, do you have the mentality of building up the body? Sometimes that means you being built up, but you have to be open to that. And sometimes that means you giving an encouraging word to somebody. But again, you have to be open to that. It might make you late to lunch. It might mean you have to reschedule an appointment for that week. But if you have someone that needs a word of encouragement, are you showing up with a willingness to give it? And as we finish here, we see that Paul had a calling, as do we, a calling that's going to cost us something. As Paul finishes his third missionary journey, he sets his heart, his mind, to go to Jerusalem. And Paul knows what's waiting for him in Jerusalem. Just listen to Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. As Paul sets his mind to go to Jerusalem, He's being told by the Spirit in every city, persecution, affliction awaits you. And Paul says, I don't consider my life of any value, but to finish the calling God has called me to. And he says it again as he gets to closer to Jerusalem. This is immediately before he goes. It says in Acts 21, Verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. For Paul, 
his own life was worth the sacrifice to live out the calling God had given him. Brothers and sisters, I can promise you your calling is going to cost you something. It may not be your life at this point in history, but it'll be aspects of your life that you may hold dear to your heart. It could cost you friendships. It could cost you promotions. It could cost you your reputation. It could cost you money. It may even cost your children something. It could cost them friends. It could cost them being part of certain activities. It could cost them popularity. Let me just give you a couple examples. My son, Albert, sons, one coming, will know that there is a cost to following Jesus. Albert is going to grow up knowing that football on Sundays will never get in the way of him gathering with the church family. Because it's not worth it. Jesus is much more valuable to me and our family than football. Sadie is going to grow up knowing that any approval or some guy liking her is never valuable enough to give up her purity. There are certain values that I am working to instill into my family and my kids. And I'm not saying this to boost my own ego, to make me look good. I'm just saying that we have decisions to make. As believers in this world, we have a world around us that says, value all sorts of other things other than Jesus. And we have, if we want to make decisions of Jesus is the most valuable, that means you might have to sacrifice one of these other valuable things the world is trying to get you to go to. Is it worth getting a promotion at a job if it means you have to do something slightly unethical? Is it worth your, your, you and your children gaining friends and getting good at certain skills if it means you have to miss church and gathering with believers for three months at a time to play that sport? Is it worth the entertainment to you to watch TV for hours at night rather than spending some of that time reading the Bible and getting to know what it means to walk faithfully with God? No matter what aspect of life it is, no matter what value system it is, following Jesus is going to cost you something. Jesus even said it. If you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross. There's a sacrificial mentality there. Following Jesus is costly. I'll just end with a story of someone willing to pay the cost. Maybe you've heard of Jim Elliott before. Jim Elliott felt called for years and years and years to go to this tribal group in Ecuador. Spent years of preparation. Him and four men travel down there. They show up on the water. They have some people show up. And this is a tribal group that has been hostile to Christians in the past, by the way. No believers there. They show up, they 
tell the people that they want to see the whole tribe. It's just a couple people that show up. They wait for a few days, and they see some people walking across the water. They go out to meet them, and all five men are killed. Before even getting to share the full story of Jesus, all five of them are killed by the tribal group that they felt called to. Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, spends the next two years with their daughter at that tribal group, seeing many come to know Jesus. Some of the very people that were involved in killing her husband were babysitting her daughter by the end of those couple years. It was a costly thing for Jim and for his wife and daughter. But we have to ask ourselves a similar question. What cost are we willing to pay? We have an idea of what our calling is. You know, we have home callings, we have church callings, we have community callings. Look at where God has placed you. What does it look like to be faithful to him in that position? Are there going to be trials? Absolutely. That's where you go to the word and you lean on God's encouragement. You come to church, you get encouraged by other believers. But in the end, we have to decide the question. How valuable is Jesus? What cost are we willing to pay to be faithful to him? For someone who hasn't trusted in Jesus, it'll cost you your pride. You have to, with humility, come to him and say, I'm a sinner, I'm messed up. That's about all you have to offer Jesus when you come to him. But the value of what you get in trusting in Jesus is you get to be in relationship with the one who made you. And you have a promise of eternity with that God. So for those of you who don't know Christ, may I urge you to be willing to count the cost because the value you get out of it is so much more. But for those of us who do know Jesus, count your cost. Be willing to pay the cost in order to be faithful to what God has called you to do. Let's pray. Father, may we consider Jesus to be of the utmost value to us. May we study our values when we leave this place today, even as we sit here, may we study our hearts and determine what is it that we're truly valuing in life. And make decisions today to value Jesus above everything else. May we be willing to pay the cost that that entails. Because we know Jesus is so much better. Stir our hearts this week to grow closer to you and to have that be our priority in life. To be faithful to what you have called us to do. 
And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.